This is M.I.P. With Masamela Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today is the author of China's Western Horizon, Beijing and the New Geopolitics of Eurasia. He's academic director of the Global Policy Program at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. From 2007 to 2015, he was senior fellow for India, Pakistan, and South Asia at the Council of Foreign Relations. He's been published in numerous publications as well. Recently, a piece in the hill.com at the hill.com. The best place to test cooperation with China is in Afghanistan. Professor Daniel Marquis joins us now. Professor, how are you? Welcome to Make It Plain. Thanks. It's good to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you. So why don't we start with what's going on now in Afghanistan? What is your take on the crisis that has unfolded there? Was, was that at all? Was Is what we have been seeing, was it at all avoidable? Yeah, it was it was avoidable, but not easily. And you know, I, I don't I don't say this lightly. In that, I don't think that the Biden administration officials intended to bring upon themselves or Afghans or the world what we are seeing now. So I don't think that this was this this latest you know the the last few weeks of a unfolding nightmare that is uh, having tremendous human costs. I think it was avoidable. Had certain other plans and preparations been made, I think the plans and preparations weren't made because the people in charge didn't think it was going to unfold quite so quickly as it did, um, or taken a bit by surprise. So, you know, I, I don't agree with when when President Biden says that this is what had to happen. It didn't quite have to happen, um, and that doesn't mean that I think he made the wrong decision by leaving. I just think. I, I wish things had been managed in a way that had greater foresight, but I know that hindsight is twenty twenty. But you do agree with the decision to leave. I do. And uh, I do in a kind of a, I'm sad to see it have to be this way uh, kind of agreement. That is, I really do wish, you know, we've been at this, you know, for my professional career, we've been involved in war in Afghanistan. There were many moments along the way when I had hopes that the situation would work out better than it did. It never did. And now it's been 20 years. And so with all the could have beens and would have beens and should have beens, eventually you just say enough. And I've reached that point. But I don't, I don't reach that point lightly or with a sense of this was always wrong, always from the start. This had to be this way. I just think that there were many, many moments when we made bad decisions and when the situation worked out worse than, than it might have been. So part of the bad decisions, or many of the bad decisions that were made, obviously, aided Joe Biden. Then this is just the latest in terms yeah. of, of bad decisions. I, and I hear what you're saying. I mean, you have to wonder whether this could have been thought through more carefully. They have said, as you as you articulated, they have said they did not anticipate this. How could they not have? <laughs> Yeah, well, as I say, hindsight is twenty twenty. The, the at the core of this is why did the situation that is the Afghan National Security Forces, why did the Afghan state, its government, collapse within a matter of days and weeks, even Kabul, rather than months or even years? And given this greater thought, I've come down to the at least two good explanations. One of them is something that was more preventable. That is, you know, a lot of the Afghan National Security Forces and the government itself 
know, they were relying on American contractors, if not American military forces, to give them the kinds of things that they needed, literally things like food and ammunition, and also things like intelligence and air cover. That's how they fought. And our withdrawal didn't just mean pulling out our forces. It also meant a pretty rapid and, as far as I can tell, very poorly managed withdrawal of all of the supporting structures, that is contractors and so on, that were helping to keep the Afghan security forces afloat and alive. Now, you could say, well, we were going to pull out, so how could you leave any of that there? And that's true. But a transitional approach might have been to say, are there some contractors, I don't know, from Turkey or from other places that can do similar types of things for these Afghan forces? Can we shift the contracts over? I think the Biden administration would have been happy to pay for some of this, or others would have been able to pay for it, keeping some of these capabilities going, but none of that happened. So there's the contractor issue and the support issue. That's one side of things. That's like capability to fight. And then the other side is the psychological problem of once it looks like you're leaving, and once it looks like everybody else is giving up, if you're an Afghan foot soldier, or even mid to senior level commander, why are you going to fight? Why are you going to be the last one to die? Better to you know surrender and hope for a better day. And that's the psychological side, which unfolded very rapidly. And um, some of that is predictable, and some of that is just predictable. You know, how do you know when people are going to say, enough, I'm not going to be the last one? Mm-hmm. Um, so you combine those two things together and you begin, I think, to get to some of the complexity of what unfolded very rapidly and why the first one, I think, was more foreseeable and therefore the administration has more blame to accept. And the second one has to do with the sort of less clear psychology of the of the Afghans and, and of their leaders. That's a little bit harder. It's harder to get inside someone's head and inside a society's head and know how quickly that's mm-hmm. going to happen. I guess Colin Powell was right when he said, if you break it, you own it, right? Yeah, I think so. And this, as you said, has been going on for 20 years. Something else that was said by Malcolm X, the chickens ultimately come home to roost. <laughs> uh, have, must we be honest with ourselves that this may go back as far as the Mujahideen and the luring of the Soviet Union there to bring it down? And I'm going to pretend to be a student in your class. Tell me mm-hmm. if this thesis question is, is inappropriate. I mean, should not the United States at least be relieved that it not bring the whole system of government down <laughs> the way it did the Soviet Union, which, I mean, it did successfully. That's what Afghanistan did. Should United, I mean, as much mm. as people are concerned about what's going on, it obviously is a human tragedy. It's terrible. But the United States is going on. It is not completely, you know, rendered destroyed as was the Soviet Union. Is, is that yeah. Is that too yeah, far? We have, an un- we have an unbelievable luxury of living on the other side of the world and fighting a war in another country, in a landlocked country on the other side of the world for 20 years. And most Americans have only indirectly been affected by this, mm-hmm. if at all. What kind of a country can do that? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just something to, to keep in mind. You're right. The Soviet Union had a more material co- uh, cost and consequence of its of its loss there. That's not the only reason for its collapse, but certainly didn't help. And by in relative terms, Afghanistan was literally on their doorstep. Yeah, and, and that is something to, uh, to, to think about. More MIP after this message. What do we say, first of all, 
to families who've lost service members. Do they or we really have anything to show for that? First of all, you know, any, anybody who, who loses someone in their own family is going through something that it's, it's hard to talk about at all. If we're trying to, to look to what has been gained, I don't think it's wrong, although I don't think it'd be satisfying to any family who's, who's lost a child but, or another loved one. But to say that we can only imagine what the consequences of not being in war in Afghanistan would be. And it is possible, and I think probably true, that America has been spared another terrorist attack. And I definitely think that it is true that, you know, I've been to Afghanistan. I was there. I met with our forces uh, there. And I can say that they were trying to do the best that they could. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to do the right thing. And I don't, you know, I don't deny them that. But I, I don't think we should, you know, I, I'm, I'm also wary about being in a business of sugarcoating how bad things are right now. They're bad. Yeah. So you focus on the region, obviously. Yeah. How does this affect the region? Yeah, well, it's, it really turns things upside down. For all of Afghanistan's neighbors, this is quite a shock. You know, some of them have been saying that this was going to happen ever since we got there. It's been two decades. The Pakistanis have been telling us, you're going to leave this place a mess. It's going to be a disaster. In a way, they look like like they were right. Of course, they contributed to some of why it's a mess and a disaster. But leaving that aside, they know that this is an ugly business and now it's it's kind of theirs. It is next door to them. The Central Asian states, whether it's Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and so on, are also very nervous about the spillover of war from Afghanistan into their societies. Even China is nervous. Russia is worried. Iran is worried. You know, the whole, everybody, every neighbor all the way around Afghanistan, you do the tour, they weren't terribly happy about having us there, but they're even, I think, in most cases, more nervous about what comes next. And to your point, as you said, we may have prevented another terrorist attack by being present there in 20 years. Should we be concerned that we're opening up this country and other countries to more terrorist attacks by leaving? Is that the real risk? It, it is a risk. Unfortunately, the broader question of Afghanistan wasn't just a matter of saving us from terrorists. It had gotten to the point of trying to stabilize a society. So there was a lot more going on. And that was not working well. Mm-hmm. And so when the Biden administration says, you know, we can protect Americans from terrorism reasonably well in Afghanistan, but using the same kind of tools that we've developed over 20 years for use in places like Libya, Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere, Yemen, it's a lot cheaper and it doesn't require us to try to stabilize these very fractured and fragmented societies. I tend to believe that they're onto something. You know, as I said before, I would have liked it if we could have actually succeeded in Afghanistan. I, you know, I, <laughs> that, that was a goal when you said, you mentioned Secretary Colin Powell and the pottery barn rule that if you break it, you own it. I felt like we had a certain obligation in Afghanistan, having invaded the country, to- toppled the Taliban, that we were, we were owners in a sense and that we had a responsibility. Well, over time, we didn't do terribly well with that. So I felt like things were getting worse. But in terms of terrorism, I think it's going to be harder in Afghanistan, but not impossible to meet the terrorism challenge. Al-Qaeda can can try to recover and regroup and rebuild. ISIS will do so as well in Afghanistan. But we have a capability, whether it's drones or listening capabilities, imagery and so on, to see and hear and have a sense as to what's going on in these parts of the world that we never had before 9-11. So... We've also locked down our society to try to make ourselves safer in some ways. 
to certain threats. There's a lot of mixed, some benefits, some huge costs to all of this, but I'd say we're generally safer. And I'm sold on the idea that the best way to protect ourselves from terrorists in Afghanistan was not to remain in a huge military conflict there, that there are other ways we should try. You've written about China too. So, and you've you've specifically written about the United States and its relationship with, uh, with China perhaps being affected by or contingent upon what is or isn't going on in Afghanistan. Tell us about that, if you would, and just how that could happen. Yeah, so I've been watching the U.S.-China relationship for a long time. I've been hopeful, uh, as have many others, that we could find ways to better uh, work together, particularly on Afghanistan and in Afghanistan. I've been disappointed (laughs) repeatedly by this. You know, the core hope was, look, We don't really agree with the Chinese on their variety of other things, but in Afghanistan, we'd like to see a degree of stability and economic growth and limited opportunities for terrorist safe haven, and so do the Chinese. So given that, how about we push uh, our partners, this is before Afghanistan collapsed, we push our partners at the negotiating table and the Chinese push their partners, which are the Pakistanis and to some extent the Taliban. This hasn't happened, didn't work terribly well. Now the the hope that I have is that you know, we can keep the Chinese on side for a while. We don't have a lot of leverage with the Taliban. We do have some things we'd like to get from them in the near term, like whatever remaining Americans would like to leave Afghanistan, and hopefully many other Afghan partners would like to leave Afghanistan. We want to get them out. And then there'll be other things we'd like to get from the Taliban. Let's see if we can. Well, I think the Chinese have some leverage here. If the Chinese let the Taliban off the hook, They uh, recognize them diplomatically, provide them some degree of economic opportunity and assistance. Then our leverage goes even farther, closer to zero Mm -hmm. on those issues or anything afterwards. So keeping the Chinese on side, uh, meaning keeping a relatively united front of uh, foreign players dealing with the Taliban may have some means of channeling them, keeping them, keeping the Taliban now from doing even worse things in the near term. It's a limited leverage, but it's real. Uh, And so that's what I'd hope to see. More MIP after this message. Hey there, I'm Nadia Komodo. Check out my show, Tigress, which is basically my unfiltered and unapologetic journey of being a work in progress. Like, I hope that I am authentic and I try to be as unfiltered as I possibly can. I am so passionate about what I do, from talking about periods to wanting to build community around the cause to loving the business that I'm working on. Tune in each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are streamed. What would be ideal from your point of view? China and what other countries could all come together to, uh, and I I hate to use the word Bush use coalition, but but for lack of a better word, a group of people to to keep the Taliban kind of straight or at bay. I mean, isn't it going to be necessary? And does the U is it is it time for the UN to do more and, and intervene? What 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 is what's what needs to happen? Yeah, I mean it's probably some people, including me, have thought maybe the UN could do more for a while now. And and I don't mean that like the UN is derelict in its responsibilities and should have stepped in or something like that. But just to say the United States was not in a great position for a long time of being a negotiating partner in Afghanistan. The UN brought with it a certain degree of outside credibility, not just based on American power, should have been given a bigger seat at the table. But that's old news now. Going forward, I think, I hope that the UN can continue to maintain a presence in Afghanistan because the UN has a 
as I think the world has an interest in what unfolds there. And the UN can be a certain set of eyes and ears and a degree of international presence that I'd like to see. So that's a UN role. With respect to other countries, look, the player in the world that now has, I would say, the, the greatest external influence on Afghanistan is Pakistan. Mm. Um, it's not China, it's not Russia, it's not Iran, although Iran has a fair amount. It's Pakistan. And in many ways, Pakistan's always been the most influential outside player. They don't do what we want always, or even most of the time, but they also have interests. And they also have interests that extend beyond what happens in Afghanistan. So if we can keep the Pakistanis on side, the Chinese on side, that'll go a long way to narrowing the opportunities for the Taliban so that they may do, you know, keep their word, not generally, but in certain ways that will allow uh, sorry, Afghanistan to avoid complete collapse into civil war, uh, even more than it already has, avoid some of the human rights abuses that we saw before, the just blatant torture and assassinations and public killings that we saw, and avoid some of the other sort of egregious things that the Taliban did, in a sense, almost just because they could. Uh, you know, the destruction of the Bamiyan Buddha statues and things like that. You know, th this is a group that doesn't care about that sort of thing unless they're, they've got a material interest to care about it. And then maybe they will care about it more. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things we'd like to see, but it's going to be incredibly difficult. I mean, we have, we have not succeeded in our aims with the Taliban in a, much over the last 20 years. Why with less attention, less resources, less leverage and less presence, are we going to be able to do it better now? I don't think it's going to be better. I think it's going to be hard. Yeah. Folks, we, the saga obviously is not over, and we will have to see what happens and think about all those who've lost loved ones, those who are trying to get out. It is a pretty tragic situation to see, Professor, as we go. I don't, I'm, I'm always been, I'm, I've never coddled presidents. I think presidents are there to be held accountable. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think that Joe Biden has found himself in a position that if you were president, if I were president, would be, you got to end this thing. Mm. And what has happened over the past 20 years, I don't think that there's a better way to come out of it unless, as you suggested, more logistical preparation had been put in place. Or as you also suggested, there was some type of transition to other support the government might need to hold on. And that would have even worked. And, and it, even as far as the UN, it, it is old news, but we also know how in the past administration, the UN was marginalized. Yep. Um, and, and that is a part of it, too. All of this kind of adds together. And all the presidents are guilty. Even the Democratic when Obama, you know, in terms of prolonging this, those things that added up to, to not really making a difference and putting them in this position. So it also, uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, but historically, Afghanistan is pretty much undefeated, isn't it? I mean, I, nobody's really gone. Is a good record? <laughs> yeah, it's undefeated, you know. <laughs> Or, or I, it's it's permanently defeated because it's always fighting itself too. Uh, right. yeah. yeah, it's a tough one. You know, I would say just reflecting on the multiple American presidents and administrations uh, leading to where we are now, I completely agree with that. I think it's also important to not uh, accept the argument, which is seems to be making the rounds, that we could have just kept on keeping on with a low-level, relatively cheap presence. And this was basically a, a sustainable problem, you know, kind of manageable thing. We could have done it for another generation, basically outlasted the Taliban at their own game. And, um, you know, that that's dangerous thinking, too, because it really understates the extent to which the decision to leave was already made within the Trump administration and negotiated our way out the door. And, you know, whether we like it or not now in retrospect, that decision was already made. 
if we had if the Biden administration had decided to go back on that, this is where I agree with President Biden, it would have required a considerable additional insertion of US troops and and you know more more time, more people, more money. It, it was not a simple solution. We, yeah. we we couldn't have just kept doing it. And that's dangerous that people are thinking that um, yeah. because it suggests that this was just something that he decided to pull the plug because he was tired of it or because he lost the policy debate back in the Obama administration or something something small like that. No, it was, it was bigger. The only bone I have to pick with him is precisely how it played out. But as I said before, you know, that's also hard to it's hard to know ahead of time just how colossal a, a failure might be and, and yeah. to plan for every everything. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your expertise. I know you. you'll be continuing to look at this. We will keep you in mind to come back. Thank you. With more perspective as this drama continues to unfold or this saga, uh, even once everybody's airlifted. I mean, let's give credit. I mean, I've never seen this largest airlift in human history. I didn't even know you could move that many people. In a day, or a matter of days, that's that that deserves some type of uh, analysis. But hundreds of thousands of people. But obviously, this this is this is very messy. So we will just yeah. have to see. Yeah. Thank you, Professor Thank Dan you. Markey. I'll also, let's do this, folks. You can follow his expertise on Twitter, Markey Daniel. Right. Yep. You got it. M a r k e y Daniel. Follow his expertise, folks. All hands, all brains on deck. As we look at this, try to figure out what's going on and deal with it uh, object as objectively as, as we can. As he has said, a lot of folks are making noise about this woulda, coulda, shoulda, but a lot of that wasn't very. A lot of the woulda, coulda, shouldas aren't very realistic either. That's partisan politics, so it, it is it is complicated and there's blame to go all the way around in terms of administrations, parties, all of that. So uh, let's try to do, do something objective uh, in all of this. Thank you, man. Yeah, good talking with you. Good talking talking with you as well. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, and wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.